Well, good morning. I'd like to begin our study uh, today with a question for you. What have you developed or pursued um, in your approach to Advent? And then within the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, what have they come to mean to you over the years? And whatever your typical attentiveness or your practice is uh, during this time of year, how has it gone for you so far during Advent? And where do you find yourself this morning as we sing these familiar Christmas carols and as we celebrate the birth of Jesus? And all around us, there's all kinds of Christmas happenings stirring up. Um, a really good question, and this is a great time where it can be quiet and you can think and you can feel before the Lord and just uh, wondering how you are doing as you experience Advent uh, during this month. Well, each year I anticipate uh, Advent uh, as the music and the teachings and the reminders of God's kindness in Jesus help to serve for me to recalibrate and to refresh my faith and my wonder and my hope and my sense of awe because I really need this uh, as the end of the year approaches. Otherwise, I often find myself um, limping toward the finish line. So our Sunday morning Advent series this year has been doing that for me. We've been drawing attention to the realities that Jesus brings with him. And last week, our focus was on the advent of love, that Jesus brings love into his world, a true, deep, eternally strong transforming love. Before that, we concentrated on the advent of life that Jesus brings now and eternally. And this morning, we're going to explore the advent of peace. Next week, it will be the advent of mission. And as we have thought about and planned for this advent, we realize that these are the things that people most hunger for, that the human heart is wired to pursue and to long for life and love, and peace, and mission, or purpose. So think of your most treasured stories that you value, that you like to hear, or retell, or to watch, from fiction books that you've read, from movies, from history, from your own family, of grandparents and other people in extended family. And most likely, these are rich tales of people finding life and love and peace and purpose, made possible through some heroic figures who endure sacrifice to achieve these transcendent realities for themselves and for others. So Advent is the true account of Jesus doing that thing, of breaking into our world to radically define and to offer to us life and love and peace and purpose. Reminds me of uh, Linus from the Charlie Brown Christmas special where he says, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. These are the things that Christmas is about for us. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to meet us and to teach us these things and for them to come alive in us. Lord Jesus, this is such a marvelous time of year <clears throat> for our culture to celebrate so many, good th so many good things. And then for us as your people, to acknowledge and to sing and to bring worship to your throne. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings 
You are our Savior. You're the one whom we adore. So we do bow down before you. Thank you for coming into our world in the way that you did and all that you have to teach us throughout the year and especially during these weeks. So Lord, as Derek has already prayed, we ask that we would have ears to hear your word, that we have open hearts, and no matter where we're coming from this morning, that we would settle in and we would hear from you and you would teach and convict and encourage us through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, a resounding theme of Advent is peace. So when the angels proclaimed to the shepherds about the birth of Christ, what did they say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The message really could have been about the announcement that joy is coming, or love, or hope. But what the angels said, God had them communicate that peace on earth is what is to commence. When Isaiah prophesied 700 years before that night in Bethlehem, he declared, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and one of his names is the Prince of Peace. In our gospel text this morning, Jesus reminds his disciples that he is leaving and that there's two promises that he gives to them. One is that the Father will send the Holy Spirit and that Jesus himself gives peace. So if you can turn to John 14, we're going to read verses 25 through 29. John 14, 25 to 29, the advent of peace. Verse 25, John 14, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. So John 14 is embedded in what is known as the farewell discourse. In conversation with his disciples, just days before his execution, Jesus prepares them for his departure. So from John 13, 31, up through John 16, and then his prayer in John 17, this farewell discourse reveals Jesus' heart for his people. And in verse 25, Jesus references this long conversation that he's been having with them by saying, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. So this is the Advent story. The Son of God has come to abide with us, but it could not last forever. So in John Chapter 14, he's been reminding of this. In verse 2, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In verse 12, I go to the Father. Verse 19, after a little while, the world will behold me no longer. The inference is, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, because I won't be abiding with you forever. 
Considering the devastating news, the devastating nature of this news to these men who had spent so much time with Jesus and who were his dear friends. They had been with him for three years and they staked their very lives on this man's life and on his teaching. And they really desired his continued protective influence. Because without him, if they understand Jesus is going to be gone, they're going to be exposed. Exposed to the leaders that hate Jesus, exposed to other kinds of influences in that culture, and they could very easily appear foolish for having hitched themselves to this man, and then he disappears or goes away. What were they, what were they going to do? Where would they go? Are they going to be responsible to continue his message in his absence? And then besides all those kinds of questions, they loved Jesus. They had become so close to him, and they needed him in their life. And can you imagine the grief that they were thinking would come upon them if he were gone? Henry Nouwen, Christian author, explains this. He says, every time we make the decision to love someone, we open ourselves to great suffering. Because those we love most cause not only great joy, but also great pain. And the greatest pain comes from leaving. When the child leaves home, when the husband or wife leaves for a long period of time or for good, when the beloved friend departs to another country or dies, the pain of the leaving can tear us apart. When the disciples languished over this kind of reality, Jesus offers them a very curious comfort. He claims that they will be better off without him, that there is a divine plan that's going to bring blessing to them and actually to everyone. And these include the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 26 and of his peace in verse 27. So we're going to take a look at those two promises, and that's really our simple outline for this morning, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of Jesus' peace. So first of all, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, again, said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in Jesus' absence, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. In his conversation so far with his disciples, he already has mentioned the Spirit. In the same chapter, verses 16 and 17, he said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. There's that word again. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here's another expression of the Trinity. The Father sends the Spirit at the request of of the Son. And so this word helper is used in both 16 and verse 26, and it's the Greek word paraclete, which refers to being called to the side of for the purpose of helping. So Jesus is affirming that his disciples will have the Spirit sent to them to supply the needs in their life and for all followers of Jesus after his departure. So in the farewell discourse, we learn about some of his this helper's role in the life of believer. As we've said in 16 and 17, the Spirit will be with them continually. He'll dwell inside of them. He'll dwell with them internally. 
He's called the spirit of truth, which lines up with the fact in verse 26 that he's going to be their teacher and remind them of all that Jesus has said. In John 15, 26, the spirit bears witness of Christ. In 16, 8, he convicts the unbelieving world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in, in verse 7 of chapter 16, Jesus comes right out and says it, I tell you, to, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So in verse 26, the helper is called the Holy Spirit, which is his characteristic designation in the New Testament. So this title for him, his name, doesn't highlight his power or some other attribute of the Spirit of God. The fundamental thing is that he is holy. He's distinctly separate in his purity and his majesty and his glory. His character matters the most of all. And did you notice that Jesus said, the Spirit will be sent in my name, in Jesus' name. The Spirit will be Jesus' designated representative to act on his behalf. In John 5, John, Jesus has already said that he came in the name of the Father. So both Jesus and the Spirit are acting as emissaries. Jesus demonstrated the character of God to humanity, and the Spirit will make the living Christ real to his followers. So verse 26 tells us much about the Spirit. He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So the Spirit is to be the teacher and the guide of the church. And additionally, the Spirit has a specific role with these first-generation disciples and apostles upon whom God will build his church. He will bring to their memories all the things Jesus told them. In John's Gospel, it's made clear that the disciples often fail to understand who Jesus is, the nature of his life and work, and really just his teaching and his mission. But by the work of the Spirit, the first disciples came to an accurate and full comprehension of the truth of Jesus Christ. And then this was expressed as they wrote the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament. So as contemporary disciples of Jesus, what's our response to be to the Holy Spirit? Well, the New Testament tells us to be filled with the Spirit, to be empowered and controlled by Him, to walk by the Spirit, to stay in step with Him through our obedience, to exercise the gifts that He gives us as stewards of His grace for the sake of others, and to not grieve Him by our disobedience, and to not quench Him, which is to not allow Him to reveal Himself through us in the way that He wants. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it's good news. The advent of Jesus ushered in the life of the Spirit for all believers. So we now live in gratitude and dependency, and we enjoy that. God himself indwells you with power and with conviction and with guidance and with truth. And all of this was made possible, as John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, by the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So this Christmas, as you listen or sing Christmas songs, as you in your home have a nativity set that you look at and contemplate that, as you thank the Lord for His incarnation, remember to celebrate as well the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given to you and to His church. So the second promise that Jesus delivers is in verse 27. Jesus says to us, 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus has, has told those who are closest to him that he's leaving, but we learn that he's going to leave something with them. It's not an inheritance of land or fortune. It's rather the peace of the Son of God based in his complete trusting love of the Father. He described it <clears throat> as my peace, a heart that is steady, still, and content, possessing an ordered internal harmony. It secures composure in the midst of trouble and dissolves fear. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I'll say it again. It's a heart that's steady, still, and content, possessing an ordered internal harmony. It secures comfort in the midst of trouble and composure, and it dissolves fear. So peace is a repeated and frequent theme in the Bible. It's inherent in the character of Jesus and in the kingdom of God. Romans 15, says, The Lord is the God of peace. Typical greetings in the New Testament letters are like the one in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As John introduces this new topic of peace in verse 27, one naturally builds a bridge back to verse 26 that the gift of the helper is linked with peace. For in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is listed and one of those is peace. As we've learned, Jesus often spoke of peace. Some of the teaching reveals what he did not mean when he said peace. We learn what biblical peace is not. John 16, I've said these things to you, that in, may, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So Jesus refuses to present a utopian vision of the world. He offers peace even though there is persistent presence of turbulence in our lives. As he considered his coming execution in John 12, John, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So our Savior acknowledged his troubling situation and countered that with trust. His peace is also not without relational conflict. In Luke 12, 49, Jesus further qualifies what he means by his peace. He said, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So faithfully living and speaking Jesus' message will create division within the closest relationships for believers. Jesus' peace is peace in the midst of tribulation and of some relational conflict, and to anticipate otherwise will lead to the confusion and the disappointment of false expectations. Now, one cannot hear the word peace coming from Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, without thinking of the Hebrew word shalom. For the Greeks and for many of us, 
peace was stood to be uh, understood essentially as a negative. Peace is the absence of war. But shalom is much more than this. It actually defies translation into just a single word such as peace. Shalom is freedom, prosperity, love, harmony, completeness, health, contentment, well-being, safety. And peace is the word that we use to uh, consolidate all of those things into one word. And this kind of comprehensive peace is grounded in a right relationship with God, whose original intent was for all of creation to have shalom. In the aftermath of our rebellion in the garden, God's people anticipated a messianic kingdom would be coming in which this kind of peace would be a fundamental characteristic. The Lord would one day fully restore this comprehensive well-being, harmony, and this peace of shalom. This rich backdrop of shalom gives color and texture and longing to Jesus' promise of peace. So besides this eventual fulfillment of shalom, when the New Testament writers expand on the notion of peace, where does it reach in our lives? Well, there are at least four expressions of peace for us to consider very easily and very quickly. The first is peace with God, and then peace within, and then peace within the church between believers, and then peace between all people. So first of all, peace with God. How and why, in the midst of brokenness and pain, can a Christian experience peace? And the essential answer to this is because of peace with God. And Romans 5.1 delivers the best news you will ever receive. I'll say that again. This is the finest piece of news that you will ever hear. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a matter of triage. What is the most urgent, critical, life-threatening issue to be addressed first? And so for me, and for you, and for all people, it is being at war with God. And without restoring this relationship, all is lost. Settling this means we're at peace with God. We move from being enemies to friends, from a rebel to a trusted citizen of his kingdom. And this is the ground from which I'm able to be an agent of peace into other relationships and realities of my life. Born into your rebellious humanity and choosing to disobey, I'm cut off from God in his moral perfection and his goodness. Under the weight of eternal condemnation, I trust in Jesus that his death took my deserved punishment. I am forgiven and counted righteous in his presence. And this fulfills my most pressing need. I am at peace with my creator. And this peace brings the promise of peace. The Lord is for me. He's with me. He's active on my behalf. His all-knowing, all-powerful, authoritative goodness is engaged with and orchestrating all that I am and all that I do. This doesn't necessarily alter circumstances, but it does undergird them with his loving presence and empowering strength and the hope of experiencing his eternal renewal and his restoration. The next expression of peace we've already discussed, which is this inner peace, the composure, the ordered interior harmony, and the steadiness that Jesus gives acts as a guardian 
for our souls. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. The Lord is at hand. He's with you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. His presence is always there. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, a battle rages inside of us. In the face of uncertainty, suffering, and forces beyond our control, we fight to lay hold of what is true and secure and real. And Jesus' peace is a sentinel which garrisons our hearts and our minds against the assault of anxiety. The next two expressions of peace are between people. So peace is promised to us. It's also commanded. It's provided for us, and we're expected to act on that and to create it in our relationships. So peace between believers. In our church family and between all believers, peace is to rule in our relationships. This is an extension of all that the Lord has done within us. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, reminds us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the body of Christ is active in promoting harmony and respect and mutual service in the midst of our differences and our conflicts. Writing to the church at Rome, Paul exhorts them, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and the building up of one another. To the Colossians, Paul shows the link between Jesus' peace and us being peacemakers. He said, above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So when the peace of Christ rules in me, I possess the desire and the capacity to express it in ways that bind people together in a loving unity. So, good question for us is, are there any relationships in our church family in which you would do well to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart so you could become a peacemaker? So if there's work to be done for you in restoring or deepening any relationship within our church, maybe the best place to start is with in your own heart, to invite the peace of Christ to dwell there, and then from that place, you can spread peace, and you can go and have conversations and care for that person, and you can reach to be a peacemaker. So peace with God, peace within, peace within believers, and the last one is peace between all people. The call to be ambassadors of peace extends beyond the circles of Christians to enfold everyone. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. The aim is for us to have peace with everyone. But Paul gives us two qualifiers. First, he says, if it is possible, which means it won't always be possible. We are earnest, just as Jesus was, in his efforts to reconcile. But peace is not always attainable. Second, as far as it depends on you. So we work faithfully from our side of the relationship, knowing that we cannot control another person's willingness to live peaceably. Four layers of peace. Peace with God, 
peace within yourself, with believers, and with the world. Receive the gift of peace with God that he offers through Christ. You let that reign in your soul, and then you build a legacy of peacemaking with others. Thinking back to our text in the middle of 27, Jesus inserts a contrast. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you do I give unto you. This use of the word world does not, phys- does not relate to the physical earth, but rather to the present condition of humanity, that we are alienated and opposed to God. Jesus lets us know, lets us know that the world system is set against him and cannot deliver on, a, on any of his promises of peace. And these attempts only reap a pseudo-peace. And this is certainly a very timely word for us, It can be helpful to understand and appreciate our particular cultural challenge. For we are said to be living in an age of increased anxiety with many voices proclaiming paths to peace. If you just stop for a moment and think about the contemporary landscape that we are facing and what we're now trying to navigate um, as a people. We face things like a frenetic pace of life, economic pressures, fractured families, isolation, polarization and anger rather than consensus building, technological communication advances that enlighten us but also intrude, threats of terrorists and random violence, and the lengthening shadow of this pandemic. And then additionally, we're reaping the fruit of a philosophical shift over the past several hundred years. Since the Renaissance 600 years ago, one can trace the lineage of philosophers and thought leaders who have championed worldviews that move the notion of a personal creator God to the fringes or attempt to completely eliminate him. There has been a deliberate trajectory from a God-centered universe to one where humanity is claimed to be the measure of all things. This has continued to gain momentum in the Western world and made inroads into the cultural influencers in the marketplace in politics, in education, in law, and entertainment. So in much of Europe, Australia, Canada, and even in our own country, our cultures are being referred to as post-Christian. So as the Apostle Paul walked into Athens, one of the cultural centers of his day, and he addressed the current philosophies and the pressing religious questions, we would do well to recognize competing worldviews and their influence on us and on others. In other words, the world is offering peace. It's not going to fulfill, but how are they offering that? All that is to say that in our Western culture, there are powerful and pervasive attempts to aggressively replace the Christian gospel with another narrative. In other words, a narrative that defines the meaning and purpose of your life and what will bring you satisfaction and wholeness. Our cultural moment has been described as the age of authenticity, in which authenticity is defined by being true to yourself, to your desires and your emotions and your inclinations, rather than being true to your calling, to your community, to your relational obligations. This commitment to individual autonomy and personal authenticity finds ultimate meaning in the self. And this turns Christianity on its head, which takes pleasure in honoring and serving our sovereign Jesus Christ 
and ordering our choices and our identity in him. Now, you may be asking, what does all this have to do with anxiety? Well, a culture that bends toward that kind of radical autonomy rejects not only the authority of God, but also his wisdom and his comfort and his guidance and his presence. Casting oneself alone into the vast existential reaches serves to increase anxiety. For transcendence disappears, and one must, must forge identity, meaning, and hope for yourself. Into this abyss of self-sufficiency, where people are operating well above their pay grade, Jesus speaks, telling us, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So here are two applications for us out of that. First, you're likely to meet increasingly anxious people. Unfettered from their creator, they will benefit from hearing how Jesus' authority and forgiveness calms your troubled heart. We all sense the upheaval, the discontent, and the unrest that is among us. And you have a message to share of the peace that Christ gives. Second, and this is especially helpful for our students, high school students, college students, and a number of you are, are back uh, from your semester and from finals. It's good to have you back. Don't loosen your moral and theological moorings as the culture tempts you to find peace and contentment in defining yourself as you please. Don't trade your birthright for a bowl of porridge. Don't trade your divinely ordered solid sense of self for the empty promises of autonomy. In contrast to the pseudo-peace peddled by the world, the book of John outlines a fuller understanding of what Jesus means by peace. It tells the story begun in the pages of the Old Testament and the mouths, through the mouths of the prophets that the Messiah will usher in a new order of the Spirit and peace. As we've read in 14, John 14, the peace Jesus leaves is tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, we read, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace is linked with the tribulation of a world at odds with its creator. But the incarnate Son, fully God and fully man, uniquely overcame the world. So again, this is a reinforcement to not depend on the world for peace. And in John 20, we read of Jesus appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. He's told them that he will leave them his peace. He's already said this to them. I'm going to leave you my peace, and then he's executed. So then three days of confusion and doubt, of alarm, follow his ugly death. And then Jesus, for the first time, recorded here in John 20, he comes to his disciples where they have locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews. John 20, 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, even so I am sending you. Excuse me, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This time his blessing of peace is tied to mission. 
Jesus is on the brink of completing his mission, and they are just beginning theirs. The reality of a servant not being greater than his master, of a student not being greater than his teacher, must be coming home to these men. Tribulation and divine mission. Jesus is teaching them. Like me, you'll be misunderstood, you'll be mistreated and maligned, yet your life is also purposeful like mine. It's magnified by a cause. It is missional. And in this costly, sometimes turbulent calling as my followers, there is possibility of an eye within the storm. And this promised messianic peace is introduced in the most novel of ways, absolutely unique in history. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was spread over uh, so much of, of Europe and, and North Africa, it triumphed in Jesus' day. And it was achieved, like most kingdoms, by the might of a brutal sword. And so many Jews envisioned that their Messiah would do much of the same. He would come to military political power and restore the glory of Israel for God's people. Instead, an innocent carpenter of no social, political, military, or educational standing died at the hands of the power brokers of the Roman and Jewish worlds. And when the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, peace on earth, who knew that it would be accomplished through a shocking, sacrificial death, the death of the one least deserving of it? This Christmas season recognized the radical nature of what God is doing in the world. Authentic power and the spiritual fruit of peace come in ways antithetical to worldly notions and to our nature. Well, there you have it, John 14, 25 to 29. As much time as we can have to, to deal with that. So upon Jesus' departure, he promises the Holy Spirit and his peace. And we have time for just one quick implication of this, and it's a question for all of us. Where are you most conflicted? Remember the expressions of peace that Jesus gives, peace with God, peace within, peace with others. Where do you feel unsettled, apprehensive, or uneasy? Where is there possibly an angst that gnaws at you? And what would it mean for you to possess a source of strength and integrity within to be able to deal with this? Well, in light of that, Jesus says he has good news for you, and that is that he's not here in the flesh, that he's left, and the Holy Spirit is here. And if you're a believer, the Spirit indwells you and empowers you and guides you. And he invites you to sit with your questions and with your longings that reside inside of you and perhaps haunt you. He wants to sit with you, wants you to sit with him, and to find rest for your soul. Now, I've learned that I actually have to fight for peace. I don't know if that sounds weird or not. I come from a family that's full of warriors, almost proud to worry, in a sense. That's how you show love, is by worrying for someone. And I also have a temperament that's serious-minded and sensitive uh, and insecure. So this is a quadruple setup for lack of peace. And so, like many of us, no matter what the exterior appearance can be of steadiness or calm or confidence, I confessed her, 
and unease. And so I have to slow down and think and feel and pray and face myself and then receive, absorb, accept, embrace the love of God through Jesus Christ expressed by the Holy Spirit. And then from that stable center point of trust, move out into the complexity and the need of human relationships. And like a good infection, peace spreads. And meanwhile, the world offers much in its on-ramp to rely on our own resources. A flood of distractions and temporal pleasures and autonomous visions storm us. But peace is found in relationship. Jesus has peace in the loving fellowship of the Trinity. His peace is found in that eternal community, and we have been brought into that. We share in that eternal relationship with the Trinity and also with each other. And that's something that we get in on right now. Upon his departure, Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit, which is a gift to us, and Jesus has, has left you his peace. So let's receive these and walk in them. Lord, thank you for these gifts that you have given to us, the magnitude and the preciousness of those things uh, can grow in our understanding through the years. Thank you for your word that makes clear what your promises are to us and the beauty of your plan. That, Lord Jesus, you came here. and You didn't have to do that. You did it to save us. You did this to show yourself who, what you're like and what, who we can be. And you did that to bring us into eternity with you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit as well. And we pray together, Lord, that we will walk in your spirit, that we'll be men and women, young people of peace, and that we will share that with others in ways that is fruitful. In Christ's name, amen.